Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee. And for this week's episode, we have got a foremost energy expert. Kevin Book heads the research team and covers oil, gas, coal, and basically all energy policy at Clearview Energy Partners, an independent firm that examines macro energy issues for institutional investors and corporate strategists. He's also a member of the National Petroleum Council and the Council on Foreign Relations. I've known him for a number of years. He is just a good guy, uh, and no one knows the critical energy policy issues that the United States of America and the world are facing better than Kevin. Uh, Perfect guest at this time to have on the pod. Thank you, Kevin, for joining the Plugged In Podcast. Neil, thanks so much for having me. So I don't even know where to begin, you know, here domestically at home. Uh, we're seeing a lot of pressure uh, on energy costs, uh, on gas prices and the like. Obviously, the tragic situation uh, in Ukraine is really girded in energy policy and is having a significant impact on uh, geopolitical energy issues as well as here domestically in the U.S. You're seeing efforts by our government and others to address the, the implications of that on top of coming out of the pandemic and inflationary pressures. Uh, tell our listeners what it all means from an energy policy standpoint. What are we going to do about gas prices? What are we going to do about diverging away from Russian fuels? Uh, uh, I don't even know where to start, Kevin. You, you're the expert. You tell our listeners. Well, Neil, they're all connected. You gave me a wide opening. But let's start where I think most American drivers and voters start, which is at the pump. Uh, you know, in uh, in the 70s, when I was a kid, my, my parents had two cars and one siphon, and they switched uh, gas between cars. Uh, we're not doing that now. It's not as bad as it was then. But there's metrics you can look at to try to get a sense of, of why people feel the way they feel about gasoline prices. And on one hand, uh, on, on one hand, you can say, well, you know, it's not as bad because in April of, uh, of 1980, uh, the the gasoline share of disposable personal income per capita was about 7%. In this April, we're projecting it's going to be about 2.8%. Uh, and so it's about two and a half times worse on a wallet share basis, apples to apples. But if you go back and you look at the, the rate of change, and that's really where I think a lot of the politics of gasoline comes in, uh, it rose by two percentage points then over the two years from April 1978 to April 1980. Uh, and it rose by about two percentage points now uh, from the very low trough at the, the height of the COVID lockdowns in April 2020. Two percentage points of disposable personal income disappearing in two years is a problem. And it's a bigger problem still when you think about what disposable income did. It went up because the government was putting money in people's pockets, stimulus money. And so that money's gone. The wallet got smaller. Gasoline got bigger. It's a big political problem. So I know the administration is feeling tremendous pressure in this regard. And uh, look, I don't envy the situation they're in. And they're trying to do what they can to balance their climate ambitions with the economic realities of the pressures that Americans are facing today. Um, The president recently uh, made the announcement that EPA will use emergency waiver authorities uh, to allow E15 sales from June through mid 
September. Uh, obviously, this was a big deal uh, that he specifically delivered uh, to a Farm Belt audience. Is this a political decision? Is this going to have any kind of meaningful impact for U.S. motorists? Or is this just, you know, kind of an effort to demonstrate that all actions are on the table? Well, Neil, you know from your time on the Hill that nothing about ethanol is apolitical. Uh, And of course, the president began his speech in Menlo, Iowa, uh, talking about Representative Cindy Axne, uh, one of the very uh, closely contested races in uh, a very closely divided Congress. And so uh, talking about ethanol in Iowa uh, is a way to try to get attention of Iowans ahead of a midterm contest that's going to matter for, for the administration. Uh, but I do think you have, to, you have to think about the bigger picture here uh, and what the administration is trying to do. The E15 intervention isn't likely to make a very big difference in price for very many motorists. Uh, the administration itself mentioned there's only about 2,300 dispensers out of the 150,000 in the country. Uh, that can that can yield E15 any time of year uh, to drivers, but the, there's a bigger question, which is what can they do about gasoline prices? And we have a, a speech in Iowa at an ethanol plant where the president actually talked for a great period of time about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve release that he had undertaken in concert with uh, International Energy Agency allies. This is a you know this is not a, a small thing. It's the biggest release in the history. The five decades or so that there's been reserves in place, 45 years. Uh, and so it bears mention to be sure. Uh, but Iowa and ethanol plant was a weird place to do it. And it gets to a couple of big themes that I think we're dealing with. And I'll just lay them out there and maybe we can dive in. One is that we're, we're seeing all the big questions that we've always wondered about in energy policy and economics. They're being asked right now and we're going to get some answers. You know, what can strategic reserves do? Can you unplug a big producer? And for that matter, are high natural gas prices, are they going to wash ashore when we increase LNG exports? So that all the big questions are being asked right now. And the second thing is is the same as it was, same as it's been uh, for every administration for decades, which is that there isn't that much that the administration can do. Uh, There are some areas where they've they've tried to intervene directly, like the SPR. And there's other areas where they're they're busy talking to industry and they're addressing the, the fact that every administration has to which is that OPEC balances the market uh, and our industry is private and run by private companies. Well, let's start to unpack that. I mean, there's a lot there. Uh, I want to start with the, uh, with the SPRO release. Do you think that's something that will have a meaningful impact? Do you think there are security implications to that? Was that the right step to take at this juncture? This is what a strategic reserve is for. Structural change in markets from the, the loss of supply certainly deserves a release. There's questions about magnitude and timing, uh, motivation. I think they're all valid, uh, but this is why we had one. It's why I testified uh, half a dozen times on the Hill not to get rid of it, not to sell it down. And actually, there are questions about whether you dig too deep into the, into the safety net uh, and you weaken it uh, because you, you don't have enough strategic reserves left for the next big thing that could happen. There are knock-on risks that follow when opportunistic actors look at lean supply demand balances and decide that they're going to try to swing politics or, or for that matter, geopolitics. But in the end, uh, you know, the, the deployment is only about half the whole in inventories relative to the five-year trend. So it makes a difference, probably puts a lid on some of the price increases, but it's not taking us back to where we were last year, no. I remember uh, going back to 2016, 
when I was uh, still working in the Senate, we were trying to finance a highway bill and we tapped uh, the Spro as a pay for. And, and you and I had some pretty uh, uh, heated conversations back then. And I recall that you were one of the last kind of remaining Spro hawks out there. Do you think this is going to re-energize uh, the, the, your fellow Spro hawks? Uh, are, are Americans going to, you know, we'd sort of been taking uh, the, the SPR for granted uh, do you think this uh, this this immediate crisis will uh, will put a greater emphasis in the future amongst policymakers and politicians uh, to value the SPR? It might, uh, but if you look back at why it was getting sold down, it, you know the Congress was was right sizing in their view the insurance policy that the SPRO provided, and so they wanted to spend it on on roads and on deficit reduction and and drug development. Those are perfectly good ways to spend the people's money. Uh, the question was, when do you buy insurance? It's best to buy it when you don't need it. Uh, it's hard to buy it when you do. Uh, but the reason why so many of those sales got put into legislation was that a lot of folks felt comforted by the buffer that shale provided. Uh, other folks said, well, yeah, we're not going to need an SPR when we, we're going to transition away from petroleum. Uh, I think what we're seeing right now is that that transition is, is going to be a lot longer than we think. And our reliance on molecules for the world we have today is a lot greater than we thought. Uh, so I think, yeah, it might, it might bring back some new enthusiasm for stocking and keeping a, an ample reserve. Let's pivot a little bit to natural gas. Uh, you know, there's been so much focus on oil in this crisis because oil is so central to Russia's economy, but really their political control over Western Europe uh, comes from their gas dominance. There's been a lot of talk of, amongst folks like myself who have been clamoring for increased production here domestically and export, taking advantage of, of the opportunity to, to get clean U.S. LNG to our European allies. But it's going to take time. Do you think we're at a moment where U.S. LNG can really fill this void and enable our European allies to move away from their dependence on Russian gas? Or do you think by the time some of these increased new shipments and, and facilities that need to be constructed are put in service, are, are they going to wind up having to compete against cheap Qatari gas or some of the new renewables that are going to be put into service as, as the EU uh, accelerates uh, renewable deployment? You know, what, what is the, the short-term and long-term outlook in your view for US LNG? Well, what we're seeing right now, Neil, is, is an absolute demonstration of the energy security that the US can provide. Uh, there's no question of that. But there's also limits to what can be provided based on the capacity we have today. So Russia can dig a much bigger hole in European supply than US LNG can fill on its own. A lot of the, the cargoes that went elsewhere are now headed to Europe, and that might stay true. Uh, the questions, I think, are about, you know, how did we get here and why would it change and where are we going? Uh, if we think back to July of 2018, uh, there was a European Commission president, then President Jean-Claude Juncker, shook uh, then U.S. President Donald Trump's hand and said, uh, we'll buy more LNG. And sure enough, they did. Not a lot more, but some more. Uh, and mostly because the, the, the LNG couldn't get a good price anywhere else, went to Europe because there was a bid there. Um, now it's, it's going to Europe because Europe's short. And uh, if Europe will sign long-term sale and, and purchase agreements with U.S. suppliers, we'll build more plants. Those will probably be take-or-pay contracts in, in a similar model to the ones that, that built the first and second generation, building the second generation now, uh, which means that the gas probably keeps flowing to Europe. Uh, but when we look ahead, you know, there's a couple of things that, that have been true for some time. One, Europe has been diversifying 
for decades, but slowly because Gazprom continued to offer a better deal. Well, is that still going to happen? I think the answer may be no. But the second is, yeah, they've been greening up in a hurry, and this speeds that up too. So uh, there's a lot of hopeful talk about how much renewable deployment you can have. But we're seeing some cost inflation in the deployment of renewables right now. It's not as easy as just waving a magic wand and and building and adding to the grid. You know this better than anyone. Uh, And so uh, even in Europe, uh, as green as their values may be, they're going to need gas for a long time. So a lot of what's going to happen here, I think, will hinge on the political will and the contract structure that it produces. If there's a long-term buyer in Europe, then I think there's going to be U.S. supply to help cover the gap. Yes. But there seems to be a reluctance uh, amongst the Europeans to make that long-term commitment. You know, are shorter-term contracts uh, a problem for U.S. developers? It's harder to go to the bank with a five-year tenor or an eight-year tenor. Uh, you know, the, a lot of the, what we're dealing with broadly, whether it's the oil patch or the LNG infrastructure, is a question of long-term signals. You know, they matter for solar, they matter for shale, they matter for LNG. Uh, you, tell a, you tell a driller, drill today, disappear tomorrow. It's not much you can take to Wall Street to say, yeah, we've got to finance upstream development. You need to know that there's a, there's a place for the investment down the road. Uh, and the same is true, much more true for long-lived facilities like LNG export terminals. So long-tenor contracts, very much the coin of the realm. Someone might sign them, marketers, third parties. There's players who can get in there, bear risk. Maybe some are willing. But really, if Europe wants to lock down the gas, that's the way to do it. Do you think Germany really will and can they afford to, at least in the short term, square off Russian gas? Like, Do you actually believe Nord Stream 2 will not be put in service? (laughs) I think there's everybody's had a chance to be made a fool by that pipeline at least once, myself included. Uh, But uh, I think that the infrastructure is built. It's actually filled. Strings are filled with gas right now. Uh, It's a, a tempting and juicy opportunity. The question, I think, isn't really an energy one so much as a political one. Will we normalize relations with Russia? And here's where words like war crimes and genocide and what they mean for geopolitics matter. If a war crime is something that you can link to a war criminal, uh, you know, for example, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, then a new leader in Russia means that old infrastructure uh, and old ways can come back. Uh, If you're talking about something like genocide, that tends to map more to the country itself. It's it's a much higher sort of standard and, of course, a a much bigger black mark uh, on the record of a country. Uh, It might make it harder for for the European buyers to to go back. But look, we we can say whatever we want about the theory uh, today. Actual shortage tomorrow can change minds, uh, just like events on the ground in Ukraine could speed up a transition away from Russian energy. We've already seen the, the, the coal embargo, be it with a four, four month lead time. Uh, after Easter, we're expecting to hear uh, about a, uh, uh, a, a sixth round of sanctions that includes a phase down or maybe a tariff on oil. You know, gas is in the mix eventually. Uh, what happens in Ukraine can certainly speed it up. So if we start to see additional flowing barrels from OPEC as a whole, from Iran. You know, I could see how that may make. European importers more willing to cut Russian crude imports. What, uh, what does that mean for India? What does that mean for China? And, and I'd be curious to get your take on just, you know, the wisdom of sanctions writ large. If the whole world isn't participating, if, uh, if invariably we're actually driving up the value of Russian oil, 
because of constraints. And, and China and India are still a willing uh, market participant with Russia. Will any of this work? Well, the sanctions successes have been few and far between. I think our policymakers' reliance on sanctions is one that will be studied and hopefully fair judges will give fair answers when all is said and done. But it's hard to make the case that that success is a victory. Uh, a tight market, as you say, with tightly enforced, strictly enforced sanctions uh, could be really, really challenging for market democracies where accountability happens you know, in, in annual or two-year intervals. Uh, it's a lot easier for exporting economies to create their resistance modalities and to lock down and, and maybe they take a discount uh, which is usually the the net result of having to smuggle barrels around sanctions regimes, uh, but they're still selling barrels, you know. And there are buyers of last resort. You mentioned India, China. Uh, they're out there because uh, that's that's part of what those own those countries need to do for their own economic survival. But really, succeeding in locking down the world and shutting down Russian barrels would be a disastrous economic result. Uh, and so uh, the question would be, who blinks first? And there's some evidence to suggest that the West might. Instead of doing that, I think what we've looked at is a sort of a, a first order sanctions effort that cuts the premium that Russia might get, uh, limits the, the revenue flows in some fashion. And there are truly unsanctionable entities out there anyway. There are limits to how far our economic force projection can reach. Uh, what we're doing now is certainly going to test those. It's uh, uh, as you said, everything is 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 completely linked. Um, bringing it back home and to gas. Uh, you recently had a report in uh, in which you guys estimated we might see four up to fourteen U.S. liquefaction projects reach uh, FID uh, in the coming calendar year, um, which would put tremendous pressure on production capacity. Do you see that scenario coming to fruition? Would that then require U.S. gas production to rise accordingly? And do you think our domestic politics have shifted to the point now that there is a recognition that energy security must be weighed in the same vein as decarbonization, and this might be the foreseeable future? Or do you think there will still be environmental pressures to move away from fossil fuels despite everything we're facing today? Wow. Uh, well, out of respect for your listeners, I'll try to keep my answer short because we could have a day on that one, I think. Uh, <laughs> but, but Neil, the, um, there's a couple of immediate takeaways. When it comes to energy security, it's still a lot easier to export molecules than electrons. So the, uh, the challenge that I think uh, for the transition in a time like this is to show where spare capacity and additional supply can come from in the electrified transition model. Uh, there are there are ways it can be done. Uh, it involves a lot of transmission cables, batteries. Uh, it involves a lot of excess capacity in uh, in destination markets. So right now we're sending molecules, and I, that is not lost on anyone. I think even some of the staunch advocates of transition have taken some petroleum rail politique into account. Uh, in terms of the gas demand from feed gas, you know one of the things about what's happening now we have LNG running flat out. Uh, feed gas inelastic demand is there uh, pretty much all the time. Uh, and that means that when you have events, cold weather, uh, you know, demand on the grid that pulls gas unexpectedly, your inventories drop and your prices go up. The connectivity, though, between the U.S. and the world is pretty limited still. 
And so not very much of that price seems to be washing onto U.S. shores. You know, have a 5x multiple with Europe right now, give or take, uh, and, and with the Asia uh, LNG de- delivered market. Uh, so it, it's still relatively well insulated. I think the question would be when you have even more feed gas demand, uh, what will you get? And the answer is entirely dependent on our policy because we have a very flat supply curve for gas. We have a lot of very gassy, gassy formations uh, that are starting to come on stream at the price we're seeing right now. Uh, and there's way more of that gas to come. Uh, but if we make it hard or uh, environmentally, we constrain the opportunity to produce that gas, then we can start to run into some of the contention scenarios that could create price inflation. Uh, I think that the answer is probably going to be one of pragmatism, which in the end is, is probably where the transition discussion had to go. It was getting very prescriptive, very green only, you know, not even nuclear power in the mix. Uh, this, this last several months of time, I think, has brought pragmatism back to the fore. I mentioned in the onset when I was doing your biography that uh, uh, you're a, a coal analyst as well. Obviously, we've discussed in the past. I'm from Kentucky. I work for Senator McConnell, uh, you know, spent uh, a good portion of my career working on behalf of coal communities. We almost don't talk about coal in the U.S. anymore, yet it's still a major part of our generation mix domestically. And as we saw with the, the, the ban on Russian coal, you know, coal still plays a role in, in, in the global energy landscape. What, uh, what are you seeing in terms of coal markets today? And, and what is the, the short to medium term future for coal in your view? Well, there's a couple of things happening right away that are, are pretty surprising. Uh, the, coal, the coal prohibitions in Europe. Uh, take a short trip and replace it with a long one, right? So moving coal by rail and ship to European markets from Russia, 50, uh, 51 million metric tons a year or so uh, last year, uh, relatively short trip, putting it on the water uh, from, from Australia, for example, or from Indonesia, uh, much longer trip. And so introducing that latency into supply, even if there were perfect substitution, which there isn't, means that you're going to put a bid on markets. Uh, and most of the coal we're talking about is steam coal from Russia, so power sector coal, which means that you've also got a bid on power sector coal that can come across the water from here. Uh, we've, we've supplied European generators with coal in the past. Uh, it looks like we're probably going to be doing it again. But with the gas price inflating, uh, also here in the US, you've got a natural bid on coal for generation here. So lo and behold, uh, we find ourselves in quite a predicament, and not surprisingly. Russian oil and gas alone uh, is about 4.5% of global energy consumption. Uh, the coal that Russia sells Europe is about a quarter of a percent of global energy consumption. Uh, right now, we're, we're basically cutting the energy supply to the world with economic force projection, with political action, with geopolitical action. Uh, and the result is that it's driving up energy prices across the board, including for coal. Uh, so coal is coal's an energy resource. You know, there's there's consequences with energy resources. Uh, all of them, they all they all come with a gotcha somewhere in the mix. Uh, but uh, it's still a, an abundant one, an available one, and a relatively substitutable one. Although you know, not perfectly, but relatively. And so it's going to play a role in balancing markets as we go through this crisis. You mentioned nuclear briefly. Um, a lot of talk about the supply chain and resources. How much is the stability of uranium supplies? going to be impacted by the crisis in Ukraine? And what could the impacts there be on nuclear power? 
Uh, my colleague, Tim Fox, has worked a lot on this. And, you know, the, the good news, I think, for a lot of the nuclear plants here on which we're heavily reliant, and for that matter, even in Europe, is that there's a relatively long fuel cycle, 18 to 24 months uh, before the refueling interval. Uh, and most of them here especially have fairly generous inventories in supply right now. So it, it isn't like we're in an imminent crisis. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not just the Russian uranium, which supplies you know 16 to 20 percent uh, or so of, of U.S. fueling that's at issue, uh, but also the Kazakh supply, the Uzbek supply, uh, which Russia may have an opportunity to impair or limit because some of it transits Russia. What we're looking at is, is a potentially much more significant issue. And uh, although it's not imminent, these things have long lead times if you want to start supply up too. So the idle capacity available here in the U.S. and perhaps more importantly in Canada coming on stream to supply uranium here to the U.S. and to allied countries is going to be a really big part of understanding how we're going to work our way out of a, a much bigger sanctions showdown on uranium as well. An essential part, if we're to keep the, the clean resource on the grid that we need for our transition and climate goals. In that similar vein, uh, can we talk about renewables and the renewable supply chain? You know, look, I'm a big proponent of renewable power. I think as renewables become more cost competitive and consumers demand them, I'm very bullish on the future. But here in this crisis, we're recognizing the, the significance of the global supply chain. COVID exposed that even prior to Russia's incursion on Ukraine. You know, should Americans be more cognizant of the supply chain risks associated with greater deployment of renewables? Well, it's inevitable that we're going to have this, this discussion because the transition isn't stopping for the war and neither is climate change. Uh, but the solution set deserves some discussion in a sober view of exactly what you discussed, you know, the supply chain issues. Factor cost inflation is interfering with the ever downward sloping cost curves that we've been seeing. Uh, and uh, it, it's starting to create questions about whether and where uh, we're going to get the next panels. Uh, clean title supply of polysilicon uh, without forced labor concern is harder to come by than it might have been. And so some of what we've introduced into the mix for non-energy reasons is complicating deployments that were already complicated for a variety of other reasons, including interconnection and, and all the things that you've dealt with throughout the, many of your, your very recent years on the FERC. Uh, but the, the question in terms of the supply chain is also one conceptually of, of how we want to think about it. You know, an electrified economy with electrified transportation would be a secure economy because you would have essentially all of the fuels that you needed from the sun and the wind, uh, renewable sourced fuels inside your borders. And so you would, you would take away some of the variable cost risks from reliance on globally priced petroleum and fossil fuels. But you would also introduce fixed cost risks uh, from having to source the, the infrastructure and the components and the minerals and the metals that go into the renewables that you would have giving you that isolation. And so you'd still be globally connected. And in some ways, the exposure could be greater. Uh, it could be more of a supply risk in, in some critical areas. We can do this, but we have to ask ourselves as a country, are we willing to dig some holes in our own soil? Are we willing to build some plants on our own terrain that have pollution implications for our own people. Uh, these are tough questions. I don't pretend that it's going to be easy to do. Nearshoring is an option. Canada is definitely in play. Uh, but when we look at doing this, we're going to be looking at doing this at cost. Uh, it's going to cost us more to get anything new at all and to get anything new from new development of new resources 
divorced from the low-cost globalization benefits that we've had from, from distributed supply chains, that's going to be even more expensive. Kevin, your, your range is just unbelievable. Uh, the breadth and depth of everything you've just covered during the course of this podcast discussion is truly remarkable. I'm not even going to get in to your views on uh, the, the recent decisions on small refiner exemptions and what the implications would be for RINs. Because one, uh, I know you and I could geek out about it, but our audience might fall asleep. But we also like to keep it light here at the uh, Plugged In podcast. And in addition to your just clearly demonstrated expertise on all manners regarding energy policy, uh, you're also a talented musician. Uh, my understanding is you're literally uh, getting the band back together. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this effort? Neil, thanks, uh, thanks for asking. So 25, more than 25 years ago, I had a band here in D.C. called Waiting for Jane. Uh, we played a lot of original songs and people seemed even to like them. Uh, Jane, very gifted singer, uh, terrific uh, talent in the band. I won't say that we were label quality or tour quality. Uh, but we could bring a crowd and we did. Uh, but, you know, people move on, life moved on, and it's been two and a half decades. So now we're trying to, to bring it back together. What I will say is that this is America. We are free and everyone has a voice, but you don't want to hear mine. So uh, <laughs> there are other singers in the band, Neil. I just, I just play guitar. Uh, are you lead or bass? Uh, lead guitar. Lead guitar. Fantastic. And where, uh, where can we see you once, uh, once you guys get restarted? Uh, I, will, I will make sure that you and everyone else are well apprised. Well, uh, Kevin Book, thank you for, uh, for joining the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to share your tremendous expertise with our listeners. Uh, I'll say to anybody on this, uh, I highly encourage you guys uh, to, 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 to look up Clearview. Kevin, how, do, how does one uh, get access to, uh, to your write-up? Uh, we're always happy to open new relationships with partners. Uh, we, uh, you can go directly to our website, cvenergy.com. Uh, and how to reach us is right there. Fantastic. Well, Kevin Book, thank you for continuing to be such a strong voice uh, on these really significant issues and, uh, and for sharing your expertise with the listeners here on the Plugged In Podcast. Well, thank you, Neil. And I, I obviously give credit to all of my colleagues at Clearview as well. Uh, this is not a one-man show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again for listening to Season 2 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.